Shalom, y'all. That's a combination of Hebrew and Texan, for those of you who didn't know. So, uh, if you'll just uh, open your Bibles to two major scriptures that I'm going to focus on. Uh, Psalm 22 and Jeremiah 31. We're going to turn to those in a few minutes, but uh, first I'm going to share my testimony for a while. And uh, the scripture that has meant so much to me over the years, of course there's many, but one that really stands out, is uh, John 15:16 that says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. And uh, that means so much to me because although in, with all of us, God chose us. Now, the fact that God chose us doesn't mean that we are robots and that you are either sort of destined for one way or the other. But what it means is, is that God draws us and then we respond to that drawing. But um, in my case especially, God chose me because I didn't believe in Him. <laughs> I believed in God, but I didn't believe in Jesus. And so God's hand was on me. And so as I share my testimony, you're going to see basically what a Jewish person has to go through and all the obstacles that we have to overcome in order to receive Jesus as our Messiah. And uh, I know this might be hard for you to believe, but uh, I don't know if you ever heard a preacher condense his testimony into six words. But I can actually condense my testimony into six words and then I'm going to elaborate a little bit. And here's the six words. I'm a Jewish Christian African American. Uh, I'll give it a while. I can tell you're very intelligent because, you know, you laughed pretty quickly. I'm very impressed. Um, first of all, I'm Jewish because both my parents are Jewish. I'm a Christian or a Messianic Jew because I believe in Jesus. I'm an African because I was born and raised in Africa. And uh, I lived there 25 years and I'm an American because I live in America. And so I can reach almost any people group because I've got something of every people group in me. <laughs> And another thing I was kind of uh, thinking the other day, I could probably qualify for about every, uh, what do you call it, every welfare check that's available to mankind. <laughs> but I'm not going to take advantage of that, I'll leave that for somebody else. You know, um, there's certain words that we are used to as Christians that Jewish people wouldn't see the same way as us. For example, the word Christ. You know, sometimes, whether it's a Jewish or a Gentile person, maybe they'll use the name Christ uh, and we'll say that's blasphemy. But with a Jewish person, it's really not blasphemy because they don't know what Christ means. Because when I was raised, uh, I, I always believed that Jesus Christ was simply his family name. I thought he was Jesus Christ and that his parents were Joseph and Mary Christ. And that's what I always believed. But you see, I had no idea, and most Jewish people have no idea, that Christ actually means Messiah. And you're not going to hear a Jewish person use Messiah in a moment of frustration, you know, as a, as a, as a word of exclamation. And so, um, I, I think, that, you know, that's a good witnessing tool. If you explain to your Jewish friends that, uh, that Christ means Messiah, because every Jew knows something about the Messiah, and there's some kind of expectation of the coming of the Messiah. You know, I attended private Jewish schools for 13 years. When I was growing up, I learned to read and write Hebrew at the same time that I learned to read and write English. And we used to say prayers five mornings a week. And uh, we'd say the prayers in Hebrew, and I would later fill in. It's what the Bible calls phylacteries, when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and he talks about their phylacteries. And really, what phylacteries are is, you know, in, in Deuteronomy, I believe it is, it says that you should take the word of God and place it as frontlets between your eyes. 
and that you should bind it to your forearm. Now, us Jews are very literal people. If you think uh, that fundamentalist Christians are literalists, we, we are even more so. Because we literally take the box with the Word of God in it and place the box on our forehead with the Word of God in and we take the actual box and put it on our forearm and we bind it to our arms. The only problem was, I never knew what was in the box. <laughs> but I guess as long as the Word was there, it hadn't quite gotten into here yet, you know, which is the real idea. And so uh, now God has internalized His law. That, really, that's what the New Covenant is. God has taken the law and internalized it and put it in our minds and in our hearts. You know, just to, to help you understand how Jewish people think when it comes to Christianity and, and, and how they see it, you know, my, my grandparents grew up in Lithuania, in Eastern Europe. And uh, when they grew up, pogroms were a way of life. Let me tell you what a pogrom is. Uh, many of the smaller cities were sometimes half Jewish, sometimes 40% Jewish. And uh, what would happen, whenever Easter time comes, we're all very excited because we're celebrating the, res the resurrection of our Messiah. But Easter was a very scary time for my grandparents. It was a very scary time because what would happen is that the Orthodox priests in the church during Easter would preach fiery sermons to the people, basically blaming the Jews for killing Christ and saying that they need to get revenge on the Jews for killing their Lord. And then what would happen, very often with the priest in the front, usually with a big cross around his neck or in his hand, followed by the Russian Cossacks, they would, raise, they would raid the Jewish villagers. And the women would be raped, men would be murdered. My grandfather would tell me stories of having to hide in a haystack or in a barn in order to not be killed or to be seriously injured. And so uh, Easter was a very scary time for them. And in their minds, because these people you know, claimed to be Christians and uh, they had a big cross and the priest was dressed in his priestly garb, etc. And so in their minds, those were Christians. And so one needs to understand when you need to speak about Christianity to a Jewish person, they're thinking persecution and hatred of Jews. In fact, what I thought, as weird as this might seem to you, but growing up in South Africa there was a lot of anti-Semitism as well. Whenever you have any kind of racism, like in South Africa there was apartheid, it's not only towards black people. You see a spirit of racism, it's, it's racist towards Jewish people, Hispanics, any minority group, it's the same spirit, it makes no difference. And so, when I was raised, you know, in that country, under that system, we, we never knew what was going to happen. The, the school that I went to, we used to have bomb scares about once a week. At least once a week, where they were threatened to blow up the school, and then we all had to evacuate the classes and go and stand in the field. The police dogs would come and sniff and make sure there was no bombs, and then eventually we'd go back. And we just expected it, and we thought, oh, well, that was, that's, that's the Christians. We always just thought that was the Christians. And so uh, it's very sad, but that was a way of life when I was raised. Uh, so anyway, I finished uh, my school uh, life, and I had to go into the military because it was mandatory. And what happened then is uh, during boot camp, I, I was no longer in a protected environment where it was just Jewish people, but I was exposed to the big world out there kind of thing. And uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism during boot camp. And uh, there were about 22 Jewish guys and over 800 what I would have called Christians, really, who were Gentiles, who occasionally went into a church building. I didn't really know the difference in those days. All I knew is that on Saturday we'd have a big parade, and uh, the Jewish guys would go, we'd already be gone for the, for the Jewish Sabbath, and then on Sunday all of the Christians would go to their churches. So we'd stand guard duty for them uh, on Sunday, and they'd stand guard duty for us on Saturday. 
But uh, there was a lot of violence even during boot camp. A lot of, uh, I didn't want to get into fights every day, even though I pretty much knew how to fight. I didn't want them to know that. Because <laughs> when there's 800 guys and they all want to fight you until someone can beat you up. So it's not a very pleasant way to live. And uh, so God gives us juice wisdom when it comes to survival sometimes. And there was a particular guy there. Uh, he was probably one of the biggest guys uh, in our camp. And uh, the only difference between him and the Incredible Hulk is that the Incredible Hulk was green. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, he didn't have terribly much else apart from bone and muscle. And, uh, but he loved, he loved condensed milk. And so he said, if I'll give him one can of condensed milk a week, he'll protect me. And so, as weird as that seems, he just left, he would just drink the whole thing in one shot. And, uh, and so he protected me. And so for the whole six months, if any, any major threats came, my friend would just stand behind me and they would just back off. Anyway, uh, something happened during that time that, uh, that God used in a powerful way in my life. There was actually a Greek uh, guy, well he wasn't a Christian, but he knew the scriptures. He belonged to some weird cult group, but I wouldn't have known the difference between a Christian cult and any other Christian in those days. Uh, but he knew the scriptures. And uh, he kept on talk to me, talking to me about Jesus. And finally I got frustrated. I said, look, I said, oh, that's all very nice, but I'm a Jew and Jews don't believe in Jesus. So he takes out his Bible and he, he opens it up and he says, here, read this. So uh, if you'll just go to Psalm 22, I want to show you what I read. Psalm 22 in your Bibles. And it starts off saying this. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So immediately I read that, I think, okay, I, I thought I was reading the Gospel, the New Testament. And then I kept on reading, and it, it, I came up to verse 16, and it says this, it says, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones, they look and stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. By the way, cast is cast, in case you're wondering what that means. And so, I'm busy reading this, and I didn't know much about Jesus, but you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out this is the gospel. You know? And I said to him, well, thanks very much, that's very nice, but this is the New Testament, and I gave it back to him. He said, no, it's not the New Testament. He said, this is Psalm 22, written by King David. I said, please, give me a break. How's, how's King David going to write about the crucifixion? In case you didn't know this, when, when David wrote this around 700 years before Jesus came, it was about 700 years before such a form of punishment as crucifixion had even been invented. And King David's writing down to every, the, the, the smallest detail, even the finest details of the crucifixion. So I thought, okay, I know what this is. This is a Christian plot to try and convert Jews. <laughs> I thought, okay, Gentiles, you know, Christians don't know any Hebrew. So they got some random guy who knew very little Hebrew and he just twisted it to try and make it sound like Jesus. So I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my grandmother's house. She's got a Tanakh, which is a Hebrew Old Testament. And I'm going to read it in the Hebrew. And then I'm going to read the rabbi's translation. So I read it in the Hebrew. And when, I came, when, I, when it came to they pierced my hands and my feet. It says, it says that in the Hebrew. But then the English translation on the other side, instead of they pierced, it says they like a lion, my hands and my feet. And apparently, it actually can mean either, but it's always been accepted that it's they pierced. And so what bothered me the most is if it can be either, why did the rabbis deliberately take it and put there, they like a lie in my hands and feet? Because grammatically it doesn't flow very smoothly, does it? 
If you say, they like a lie in my hands and feet. Although, even if it did say that, even though it doesn't, even if it said that, it still describes crucifixion perfectly. And so, really, it really backfired, really, on, on what they were trying to hide, because it really convinced me even more, if they're trying to hide something, if they appear sounds like it's Jesus, why, not, why change it? What's the motive behind it? So, anyway, I still had 18 months of army uh, left, and uh, the Incredible Hulk was transferred to another army base. And so I was in trouble. So I thought, well, one of two things. Either I'm going to be fighting for my survival for the next 18 months, or I've got to become the Incredible Hulk myself. <laughs> I didn't know how to do that, but uh, I actually joined a boxing gym and started training very hard, and actually became very good at it, so much so that by the end of the 18 months, they asked me if I turned professional, but I said, well, nice Jewish boys don't box. Uh, but the good thing is that uh, nobody would mess with me, so that kind of helped. So people look at me sometimes and they say, well, you don't look like a boxer. You know, your nose isn't broken, your face looks normal, you know. So, well, if my face looks like it's been hit by a meteor, I shouldn't be boxing, right? The whole idea is not to get hit. Well, at least Jewish boxers feel that way anyway. So, uh, so what I did then is, uh, when I finished the army, I went to Israel, and I was living on a kibbutz called Shvayim, which is beautiful kibbutz on the coast between Tel Aviv and Netanya. Uh, for those of you who don't know, a kibbutz is a kind of a farming community, uh, kind of cooperative farming sort of thing. And really Israel in the early years was actually built on kibbutzim. And this was a beautiful one. And so anyway, I went there, then eventually I went to America, and I was studying in New York, and I went back again to Israel in the summer of 1984. And, uh, and while I was there, um, there were actually three guys sharing a room, and one of the guys who moved in, um, his name was Frank, he was a born-again Christian from Washington, D.C., and I think he was the first born-again Christian that I'd ever met, that, that I know of, and I just knew he was different, even though I, I didn't understand him very well, but I knew he was different, there was something different, there was something I liked about him, even though he didn't know that, because I, I didn't make out like I did at all. In fact, I played the devil's advocate with him a lot. But one day he began to speak about Jesus in Jerusalem. And I thought, that's really strange. What on earth would Jesus have been doing in Jerusalem? Because I thought that Jesus was a Catholic. And so, you know, I could, I could understand Jesus being at the Vatican or in Rome, but Jerusalem, I didn't know what he was doing there. And, uh, and as weird as that seems, I, I never dreamed he was Jewish, because most of the Christians I knew hated the Jews. So I thought, well, there's no way he could be Jewish, because then they wouldn't hate the Jews. Uh, obviously, I was wrong, but uh, anyway. And so... Uh, I used to always go to the Arab market in Jerusalem. For those of you who've been to Israel, if you go to the old city, there's one of the, one of the entrances, it's called Jaffa Gate. And I'd go through Jaffa Gate, and I used to go to the Arab market. And so I was traveling with a friend of mine from Zimbabwe, uh, who was a rugby player, and very good friend of mine, really big guy. And uh, as we were walking through Jaffa Gate, about to go to the Arab market, just as real as, uh, as my brother sitting here in the front row, Jesus appears to me, standing in front of me, about ten feet in front of me, looking at me. You say, how do you know it was Jesus? I just want to tell you something. If, if Jesus appears to you, you'll know it. <laughs> no one's going to have to tell you. And there's two major things that instantly hit me in a really powerful way. The first thing is that I was amazed how Jewish he looked and how in context he looked in Jerusalem. And uh, a little bit, little bit darker than me, just a little more of an olive skin. But more than that, I didn't know the theology of who Jesus was. But when I looked in his eyes, I saw perfect and unconditional love, like I'd never ever seen in my life before anywhere. And somehow I knew that he knew 
everything I'd ever done or ever would do, and yet he loved me perfectly and with unconditional love. And I knew in that moment that I was complete and that he was all that I needed. Isn't that amazing? That was all by revelation. I mean, that's what the Bible says. And I don't know what the Bible said. And he spoke one word to me without opening his mouth. You say, how did he do that? Well, I can't explain it, but he's God. I guess he can do what he wants. And, and the, the, the word he spoke to me was the word hineni, which in Hebrew means here am I. In other words, I am the one that you've been looking for. And then as soon as he had appeared, he disappeared again. And, and I was just really upset because I thought, well, he's just disappeared. Everything I've ever wanted was in front of me. Everything I ever needed was in front of me. And now he's gone. And a few seconds later, he reappeared about 10 feet to the right, looking at me with that same incredible love. And I felt so fulfilled and accepted and so complete once again. And then, of course, you guessed it, he disappeared again. And again, I was frantically looking around. And maybe you think, well, what about my friend with me? What about everybody around me? It was like time was frozen. I can't explain it. It's like everybody around me was just frozen and I was like in this bubble. It was just me and God. Anyway, I looked around and then the third time I saw him walking along the wall of the old city. The wall's very wide. It's about 15 feet wide. And he was walking, uh, there's the citadel or the Tower of David. And then, then it goes towards Jaffa Gate, for those of you who know Jerusalem. And he was walking along the wall, but this time he wasn't looking at me. This time he was just looking straight in, in front of him. And I didn't know how to pray except for rote prayers in Hebrew, like I told you. But I just thought in my heart, if only he would look at me just one more time. I just thought that. And I believe in God's eyes, in God's heart, that was the first real prayer that I ever prayed from my heart. Even though my mouth didn't open. And the very second I thought that, he turned and looked me straight in the eyes, just like that. As if to say, the very second you thought that, I heard, and I'm answering your prayer. And so the scripture is very real to me, a particular scripture that says, Before they call upon me, I will answer them. And I want you to know that before you ever call upon the Lord, He's already heard you. Before you ever call upon Him, He's heard your prayer. You see, prayer is more for our benefit than God's benefit. Because God already knows our need. And so I want to encourage you that God is so real. That he's just a prayer away. All you've got to do is make your request known and God instantly hears you and he will answer your prayers. And so, because of that experience, I've never struggled with faith. Because really it's easy to believe God when you know how real he is. So it was about a month after that that I was actually saved and received the Lord. And the guy who led me to the Lord, uh, his name was, was Avi Schneider, a Jewish believer, a wonderful man of God. And uh, he led me in the sinner's prayer and then he was so excited because I, I just knew that I'd prayed this by faith. I believed Jesus was the Messiah. I didn't know much else. And he was so excited and he said, Brother, I'm so excited. He said, he said I want you to know that if, it, if you go outside and a truck hits you, you're going to go straight to heaven. <laughs> so I thought, what a strange little man. <laughs> but I'm always very careful when I cross the road, you know. <laughs> Whenever I see trucks, I avoid them at every expense that I can think of. But of course, in his mind, he was saying that I'm saved. But I, you see, I had no idea that I wouldn't have gone to heaven. I, I thought that I was just saved because I was Jewish. I thought, well, Gentiles have to go through Jesus, but us Jews go direct. <laughs> you know, we do <laughs> UPS, next day air, you know. <laughs> now, of course, God straightened out my theology since then. And I realized that everybody needs Jesus. In fact, in the first century, one of the biggest arguments amongst Jewish believers was can Gentiles also believe in Jesus? And now it's almost become the opposite 2,000 years later. 
And you know, as excited as I was to be saved, I must confess something to you and be honest with you. I think church is a good place to be honest, don't you? That at the same time as being excited, I was kind of angry for a while. And I'm over it now, so just relax, okay? But I was angry. I thought, you mean all this time these Gentiles have known that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel? And no one ever bothered to tell me? That's why I feel so strongly about Gateway's mission and Gateway Church because I wish that there was a Gateway Church where I lived in Johannesburg. I wish there was a church like this in every major city of the world where there's a Jewish population that believes in going to the Jew first. Are you all following me? Because that is what, you know, in the first century when they believed in going to the Jew first, because it's what the scripture teaches, the whole world was evangelized in less than a hundred years. The whole known world. With no television, no media, no advertising, nothing. Why? Just because they followed God's pattern. Can you imagine if the whole church comes back to the paradigm of going to the Jew first? And I want you to know something. It's not just one or two scriptures. In fact, it's one of the central themes of the New Testament is going to the Jew first. And I believe that God blesses his pattern. And that's why Gateway is so blessed, as Pastor Roberts so clearly and eloquently explained last week. So I believe this is a time of bringing the gospel back to the Jews. If you'll just turn with me to the second scripture that I spoke to you about, uh, Jeremiah 31. First I want to say, who did God make the new covenant with? You know, there is, there is a, a teaching that is very dangerous. It's not only dangerous, but I believe that the devil has designed this teaching to hinder God's end time plan being fulfilled for the nations. And there's a, there's a teaching called replacement theology, which basically says that uh, God has replaced Israel with the church. That he's replaced the Jews with Gentiles, basically. And he's rejected Israel. The reason that it's very dangerous is because it actually prevents people from sharing the gospel with the Jews. So not only is to the Jew first not practiced, but not, it's not to the Jew at all, period. Are you all following me? And so it says in Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I'll make a new covenant with who? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so the new, both covenants are made with the Jews, both old and new, but God has grafted in the Gentiles, so we are all one family, the Bible says. Grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Then Jeremiah 31, verse 35 through 37 says this. It says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon, and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. You know, God feels so strongly about the Jews and about his covenant with Israel that he goes to all this trouble to say that basically the only way the Jews can stop to exist as a nation and as a people is if the sun, if the sun stops shining every day, and we know what happened if that happened, if the stars stop coming out in the evening, if you go out one night into the beautiful Texas sky and there's no stars, uh, if, if all of the ocean suddenly becomes a lake and there's no waves, if that happens, then they won't be in Jews anymore. And then, just in case that wasn't enough to emphasize God's points, he, thought, let me, he feels so strongly about it, he goes to verse 37 and says, let me emphasize this even more. And then he says this, Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured. So now God has made it absolutely impossible because there's no ways anybody can measure all the galaxies. Even with all the technology we have today, they can never be measured. 
and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then I will cast off the seed of Israel. Do you think God feels strongly about this? I think he feels pretty strongly about it. So, I, I, and, and I'm comforted because, you know, they've been trying to kill me for 2,000 years, you know. Not only me, but you know what I'm saying, my people. And so it's comforting to know because really, uh, if you look in the natural, there's no ways. There is no ways that the Jews should have survived what we've gone through over these years unless it was the hand of God. You know, as a Jewish believer, Jewish believers are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because in the Jewish community, they say, well, you know, you're not a Jew anymore, you're a Christian now, so you're not one of us anymore. Then, in much of the church world, they say, well, you're not a Jew anymore because the Bible says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And so, you, I'm, I'm just kind of this sort of blob that's in Christ, you know, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> so I'm not Jewish, I'm not Christian, well, what am I, I'm just a blob, you know. But uh, if you turn to Romans 3.28, that's the scripture that's, that they use. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That's interesting. So the same scripture. So how many in here are female and you believe in Jesus? Put up your hands. Wow, that's amazing. You can be both. Wow, okay. How many in here are males and you believe in Jesus? Okay, 90% of you, the other 10%, you need to go to Freedom Ministries that haven't put up your hand, okay? <laughs> so I think you catch the drift. You can be a Jew and believe in Jesus. You don't give up your national heritage. You don't give up who God has made you to be. Because the Bible says that each man remain in the state that he was in when God called him. That doesn't mean any sin, but as far as your, your natural disposition and your, your cultural background. And you know, Paul the Apostle uh, was speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem. The same Paul the Apostle that penned, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, etc., male nor female. The very same Paul the Apostle is addressing Jewish leaders in Jerusalem in Acts 22.3, and you can read it in your own time, and he starts off the address saying, I am a Jew. The same Paul the Apostle who said, there's not, you understand. So, it doesn't mean he just became a blob now in Christ. Basically what that's saying is, is that when, when push comes to shove, the bottom line, when the rubber meets the road, what really matters is that you're in Christ. And we all agree on that. But it doesn't mean, you understand. And so that is important because if Jews think they have to stop being Jewish to believe in Jesus, then many of them won't receive the Lord. And so really, I, you know, I became a completed Jew when I came to faith in my Messiah. Just as a guy becomes a completed guy, or a woman becomes a completed, or a whole woman in the same way. And you know, one thing I must say here, as I'm beginning to close up here, is that the Bible says in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no other name. And by the way, Peter was speaking to a Jewish audience when he said that. But you know, I, I unashamedly share the gospel with my people. I unashamedly say that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel, that he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And we are seeing more Jews saved today Every month, virtually, we're seeing Jews saved right here at the Messianic service here at Gateway. And I encourage you all to come just to experience it, to stand with us and support us in that. But you know, the DNA of Gateway is God's DNA to reach His chosen people. And I, I just want to share a story in closing as to why I'm even here, why I even exist, because it's a real miraculous story. My grandparents, as I mentioned, grew up in Lithuania, and uh, many of the towns that the Jews lived in were sometimes 40% Jewish, sometimes 50% Jewish. And the town that my great-grandfather grew up in, in Lithuania, was uh, almost 40% Jewish, about 36%. Uh, 
the population was around 16,000. There were almost 7,000 Jews. And uh, he was in the Russian army because Lithuania was part of Russia until 1918. And he contracted a form of tuberculosis. And he was very worried about his health. Went to the doctor and said, Doctor, how can I live a long life? And I'm not a medical person, but the doctor said to him that if you live at a higher altitude where the air is thinner, you'll live longer. And so he said, well, where can I go? And he said, well, there's a place in South Africa called South Africa where you can make a good living and the southern tip of Africa and there's a big gold rush there and there's gold mines there and uh, you could open up a store in one of those mines and the altitude is very high. Johannesburg is very high. Uh, I think it's about um, 6,000 meters which is around 18,000, 20,000 feet above sea level, something like that. And uh, so he went to do that, left his family behind. They didn't see him for a long time but they came uh, after the Russian Revolution and the First World War, they came to join him in South Africa. And I'm saying all of that to say this, uh, from 1941 to 1943, especially in 1943 when the Nazis came through Lithuania and through that village, the Jewish population went from, as I said, 36% down to zero in a few months. And they would take all the rest of the Jews that were left in that city, make them take off their clothes, they would either dig deep pits or there would be pits that were already there. Didn't matter if they were babies, young, old. It wouldn't really matter. They would just line them all up and they would just mow them down like they were dogs. And if there was a few hundred, they would just hold their machine guns. But if there was a few thousand, there was one that I actually read about that was over 5,000. And when that would happen, because the Nazis didn't want to hurt their biceps by holding their machine guns so long, God forbid, you know, what they did is they put their machine guns on tripods. And they would just sit there casually smoking a cigarette and just gun them down and mow them down. But you know, this really touched my heart even when I began to read more about it recently. That God wants to save the Jewish people. And you know, if my great-grandfather didn't have tuberculosis, if he hadn't left, I wouldn't be here today. And what I want to say through that is that when God's, when God's hand is upon somebody... And God's hand is upon every one of you, whether you know it or not. When God has a destiny on your life, there is nothing that any person can do to stop it. Because God will literally, if necessary, move heaven and earth to make sure that your calling is fulfilled in this life. And God will preserve you.